Welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. Today's guest is Caitlin Long. We started her 22-year career in Wall Street at Solomon Brothers in 94, moving then to Credit Suisse and then on to run Morgan Stanley's pension solution business from 2007 to 2016. She has been full-time blockchain since leaving Wall Street in 2016 as the president of Symbian, an enterprise blockchain company spearheading, also spearheading pro-Bitcoin legislation in Wyoming this past spring, and most recently as a Forbes contributor on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's great to chat with you. We've been back and forth on Twitter a lot, so it's nice to connect with you live. Yeah, no, it is. It is really great. I've been following you for a while. But uh, uh, before we do, uh, you know, delve into this, I'd just kind of like to hear you know, your Bitcoin origin story. When did you first hear about it? What made you kind of warm up to it? You know, What got you to finally be convinced of its uh, potential? Well, I, I read about it in Austrian economic circles at least as early as 2012. Um, so by Austrian economic circles standards, I was late to it. But by Wall Street standards, I was definitely early. Um, and and the, the specific thing that actually got me to finally um, act on it was an email that came in from Jeffrey Tucker at Laissez-Faire Books. Uh, and actually, I resent, I'd saved that email and I resent it to him a few months back and he posted it on Facebook because it was never a public uh, published uh, you know blog post but it was so perfect because it had what I needed as a non-technologist which is how-to information and he had gleaned that from Liberty Forum up in New Hampshire that year and uh, so I was actually um, I was flat on my back at that time recovering from surgery and was able to take the time to read about it and set up my first wallet and didn't get my first Bitcoin right away. Do you know, like so many people, I kind of legged into it. First, you you're intimidated by the technology, especially back then. There were a lot fewer user friendly um, interfaces back then, uh, and then also just in general, just scratched my head and couldn't believe that somebody actually came up with this. But the deeper you dive, the more you realize it's real. Yeah, no, I think uh, um, Mises is kind of a gateway drug to uh, Bitcoin and, <laughs> for, uh, for, for, for a lot of people. Including for Satoshi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, as well. Uh, and you've been doing some great work in Wyoming as well. I mean, it was just this past spring. Um, I know that's where I was kind of following a lot of what you were doing there. And you're quite instrumental in getting, what was it five blockchain friendly bills passed? Yeah, uh, a, a couple of them were unanimous in both houses, and all five of them passed. And we're not done. We're, we've actually got a couple of a couple more bills coming up that are going to be very meaningful, I believe, to the industry in helping to solve some real issues. One of which is a lot of the startups in this industry just can't get bank accounts because the traditional banking industry won't deal with them because the startups don't pass know your customer and anti money laundering rules. So. We found a way using state chartered bank uh, charters to, to do that. But the way in which we're going to propose it to the legislature, I think, is going to be very meaningful to a lot of people beyond just this industry. And so stay tuned. We've got you know more, more coming in Wyoming to try to attract businesses. And I'm, you know, that's my service project to the industry. I'm, I'm purely a volunteer. I'm no longer at Symbian. I left in January. I've been doing the Wyoming work and and writing full-time since then and uh you know very much doing what i can do to help advance the cause so would you call wyoming on its way or already the uh, friendliest state to uh, blockchain and bitcoin well legally it's the friendliest state uh some lawyers would debate how meaningful that is given that the sec has federal jurisdiction over securities sure. law 
Um, and that is clear, uh, unfortunately. Um, but, but what's interesting is that states have jurisdiction over property. And so the question is, are cryptocurrencies securities or are they property? And under I, the IRS says they're property and under Wyoming law, they're property. And by the way, they're exempt from property taxes in Wyoming. So it's a very tax friendly state. It already is tax friendly anyway. There's no income tax and, and no capital gains tax and virtually no property tax, virtually no estate tax, it, virtually, virtually no sales tax. It's a very tax friendly place. Um, but we, we've, we've made it even tax friendlier to the crypto industry. Um, but, you know, the SEC says a lot of these securities, a lot of these tokens are securities. And uh, so they claim federal jurisdiction. And I think there's, I think there's going to be some litigation in, in the industry we're setting up to help the industry defend itself against the securities enforcement actions where that line is very close. It's very clear in scams. You know, there's no, there's no mm -hmm. defending, um, you know, the scams for sure. We're not interested in defending the scams, but where we are interested is defending the legitimate businesses that are issuing tokens to fund themselves that are not securities. And um, we're also interested in, uh, in, in, in having that, that battle over whether these things are property or whether they're securities under the law. Um, and, you know, I think there, there's a lot of litigation coming, I suspect, over these regulatory skirmishes in, in the next few years. That's one area where I think uh, it'll be coming. There was just an interesting lawsuit unrelated to this today filed by Michael Turpin against AT&T for allowing a hacker to steal his identity, steal his SIM card. The SIM card porting has been a big issue. Um, and it was great that Michael, um, you know, took on the uh, the issue himself um, on the, you know, to the benefit of a lot of the regular folks in the crypto industry who don't have the means by which to litigate. I think there are going to be some deep pocketed litigation testing some of the regulatory jurisdiction issues. And, um, you know, Wyoming's happy to be in that in that fight. It's always been a, a, a more of a libertarian state. I remember mm -hmm. when I was 20. They changed the drinking age to 21, and Wyoming was the la the second to the last state to actually um, uh, acquiesce to the federal pressure to change the drinking age to 21. And I helped fight that back then. So um, I guess I've got a little bit of a of a, of a Wyoming libertarian streak, and uh, Wyoming itself it, it, it relishes these battles between state and federal issues where it's on the right side. Yeah, I grew, I grew up in Alaska and I lived in Idaho uh, for oh, wow. a while. And so I, I kind of got a soft spot in my heart for the West. I really miss it, mostly the mountains. And, sure. um, uh, but that's actually where I got into crypto was in Idaho. And that's, I started running mining rigs. One, just because it, the power oh, was yeah. so cheap. Um, right. Just because of the hydroelectric dams, it was just terribly cheap uh, up there. And I always kind of felt at the time, and that was back in 2013, I felt at the time that I was like, man, that you know, the West could really, considering a lot of the federal environmental pressure on a lot of the traditional mining operations, uh, they could really make a go of it to kind of bring in, you know, kind of this. I, I know it's not the same as mining, but it's just a word. But it just, you know, kind of this new industry, just kind of given their very kind of, you know, live and let live policies, you know, yep. lower taxes and, and, you know, cheap energy. I always felt it was a really great place to, and I'm glad to see that Wyoming's, at least uh, Idaho wasn't, but uh, that Wyoming's kind of taken the reins, so to speak, no pun intended either. 
Oh, yeah. It, one of the things that I discovered, though, working very closely with a number of the large mining operations is that in spite of the fact that Wyoming is so resource rich, the power is actually not that cheap there because it doesn't have a lot of hydro. So um, that right now, the miners have been able to find all the power that they need around the world in the cheaper mining sources, the, the power sources. The big miners are are able to mine for sub four cents a kilowatt hour. And Wyoming's got a lot of power available at five cents a kilowatt hour. So as this industry continues to grow and the mining demands increase, I think there will be a time when that switch flips and they will be very welcome in Wyoming. There are lots of sites and we know where they are. And we've worked with the miners already to get them you know, ready to go when it becomes economical, but, um, there, you know, there, there's some government interference. The public utilities commission, uh, is, is actually, um, essentially enforcing higher prices. So we're looking into that. Um, and, and we had an ironic situation where a South Dakota utility came in and quoted a lower price than the Wyoming power price, even though it was importing coal from Wyoming to burn in the power plant in South Dakota. Um, you know, so those kinds of things, you just kind of shake your head and think, you know, how did that happen, right? It's Wyoming coal being burned in this South Dakota plant, and they're undercutting the Wyoming, uh, you know, bid for for bringing in the, the, the these data centers for mining operations. But uh, it's it's all there, we know, and, and the miners have done their homework, the big guys have done their homework. And I think they're, they're, they're not coming into Wyoming yet, because they can satisfy their their power demands elsewhere in the world right now more cheaply, but we're on the cusp, I think, of, of a lot of them eventually coming into Wyoming, and they will find a very, very welcome environment when they get there. And I, I'm wondering, I just read an article uh, in Forbes today about the, I think it was titled The Coming Trade War um, with China in, in regards to blockchain and, and crypto, and um, just kind of the United States not wanting to cede that territory, and uh, the fact that the majority of you know mining operations and and uh, just you know, creation of you know mining units is all basically yeah. based in China, and what kind of pressure that might be putting on the the U.S. government to to kind of really ease up a lot of things and and to kind of try to bring some of that more domestically to not cede that territory that's going to probably be very much more important ten twenty thirty years than it is now. Yeah, it's a it's it's a great point. Um, you know, and, I, and none of us wants this trade war. And, you know, we certainly um, are worried within the crypto industry because of the fact that the um, ASIC chips are mostly manufactured in China, to your point, but they're not mostly located in China. They're, they come out of China pretty quickly and then get dispersed around the world. So, the, you know, the miners are obviously all very aware of that as a risk and they've already taken great steps. I've also been interested, I'll be writing a Forbes piece on mining at some point soon because I've talked to a couple of the big miners um, and the gist of those pieces are going to be mining doesn't use anywhere nearly the electricity that most folks who do back of the envelope calculations conclude that mining uses and yeah. the reason is twofold it's that the chips as you know have been much, have become much much more efficient but it's also in how they're actually implemented in the actual data centers you can call them mines whatever you want to call them the actual you know server uh, farms uh, that that host these miners 
there's a lot of engineering that goes into reducing the power usage and reducing the cooling costs. And, you know, it's, it's I look at, um, like my former firm, Morgan Stanley, put out a piece that said that mining was going to be using what was essentially an outrageously high estimate of of power by the end of the year. There was a, a piece that came out from somebody, I think, in Deloitte, um, who said that uh, this was earlier this summer, that mining is using more electricity than the country of Ireland. And when I actually talked to the big miners, uh, it's very clear to me that that's, that those, both of those estimates are way high and that, that the miners are actually not using anywhere nearly that electricity. And, and I'll put some of the numbers out for folks. Um, but it's, it's that customization in, in the fabrication that, uh, that, that, that really matters. And that's what those big guys who are doing the back of the envelope calculations are missing. Now, over the uh, the past, I think, roughly three weeks, you just finished a three-part series on how Bitcoin and Wall Street are beginning to interact and you know change each other for better or worse. You know yep. what? It, what in your mind are the positive and ne- uh, negatives of this? You know, inter- intermingling at an institutional scale, and what is the state of you know Wall Street and institutional finance's ability to kind of participate in this new world of you know digitized assets and cryptocurrencies? Well, um, let me start off by saying Bitcoin's going to win. This is uh, this is a, a war with many battles, and Bitcoin's going to win. So, to the extent that I've raised issues, these are more about the near-term skirmishes than the long-term outcome. It is just so far superior to the fiat money system that we have, the leveraged financial industry that can't keep track of who knows what, and there's a lot more hidden leverage in the system than we all realize. Uh, so I, I, as an overarching comment, uh, even the things that I've raised as concerns are not the sort of thing that's going to take Bitcoin down. Um, but I do believe that they, the Wall Street you know, can take a chunk out of Bitcoin. And, and it's impossible to prove, of course, what caused the price action. But if you just look in a couple of days after the ICE announcement at the Bitcoin price reaction, it was down almost 20% on not a lot of other news. Now, of course, it's been trending down generally, and it's always dangerous to say you know what caused a, a price change. But that's a it was a pretty significant price change in the face of a lot of folks on the day of the announcement saying, yeah, this is the thing that's going to make Bitcoin's price go up. And then, you know, you see the price go down um, and it does make you scratch your head. And I, I think that is consistent with the notion that Wall Street is going to come in and you know start doing its thing with Bitcoin and and the imp- what Wall Street does is rehypothecate and commingle assets and it does create liquidity it does bring in institutional investors those things are absolutely positive but the, uh, the liquidity if it's coming from creating artificial claims to Bitcoin that aren't backed up by re- by the real thing. That's not that's liquidity that that, that, presses, that suppresses the price because that liquidity creates it, it saps demand for the real thing because people can buy it through their brokerage accounts uh, and how many people really realize this is where I get into the debate with the, the the free banking folks who defend fractional reserve banking that it's okay uh, as long as people know what they're getting into how many people really realize. Um, that they don't own Bitcoin when they buy Bitcoin in an ETF form. Most people probably think they do actually own the real thing. 
And uh, I think the other reality is there's no transparency into how leveraged Bitcoin's going to become. In other words, we're not going to be able to see in that centralized second layer that I said it's building, we're not going to be able to see how many times they've promised Bitcoin out to their customers relative to how many Bitcoins they actually have in their custody. There is going to be no way to, to verify that. And so it's the same problem as with the Coinbase's and all the other exchanges that are custodial exchanges, with the exception of, say, Shapeshift, which is non-custodial. Um, the custodial exchanges have the same issue, right? And I remember a couple of summers ago, Coinbase had a run. There were a lot of folks who were very worried about um, whether Coinbase technology was sound and um, starting to question whether they had, it's almost a tether, the tether point, right? Do you really have all the Bitcoins you say you have? Or are you playing three card Monty behind the scenes? We have no way to verify that. Uh, and it's the same issue. It's just that Wall Street is going to be doing it to a much greater magnitude because they've just got a much bigger balance sheet and they are used to running leveraged businesses. And, uh, you know, I think, though, they've met their match with Bitcoin, that the run on the bank risk with Bitcoin is very different than the run on the bank risk with traditional assets. And anyone who buys a, a, a financialized Bitcoin is not buying the real thing. They're buying a substitute. And I, I think you you know you've you've talked about this um, in in Trace Mayer's podcast as well as in your article about you know the 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 custody problem and and I wanted to kind of discuss that in, in detail a little bit uh, later. But since we're already talking about you know leverage and fractional reserve, that the custody issue and for for Bitcoin in in regards to forks or if you're talking Ethereum in regards to like airdrops or something like that, um, I I think a great point was brought up and I mean, they can't not honor a, a fork per se, like, you know, when Coinbase with, with Bitcoin cash, you know, for a long time or for not a long time, but a period of time, they're saying they weren't going to honor it. And then all of a sudden they said they were, it can, how would Wall Street handle that? And plus the issue that you guys had brought up when you're talking about forks and how that could really just kind of upset the whole cart in in terms of like, you know, leverage or, or, or fractional reserve with Bitcoin. Yeah, I, the, the Forks point is the big one. And and it's co it's confused a lot of people, it, both on the crypto side as well as the Wall Street side. And they're coming at it from totally different perspectives. Wall Street kind of says, well, we can handle that through our legal documentations, our, our, our legal documents. It's, it's kind of like a stock dividend or um, a rights offering. Uh, well, the problem is no two forks are alike, as crypto people know, and I challenge any attorney to write language that's going to cover absolutely pos every possible <laughs> fork scenario. You know, there's a very high probability that that Bitcoin's going to have forks again. How many forks has it already had? Uh, and so, you know, um, I, I think that's a very important open question. But the crypto folks ask, were asking the more pertinent questions, I think, which are, you know, wait a minute, um, why is it that a fork... Um, is 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 bad. Um, and Andreas Antonopoulos today released a video where he was coming out against the ETFs, uh, bursting a lot of folks' bubbles and saying that um, uh, the, the 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 big custodians in the first place are going to influence the forks, right? Because you're going to have big pools of Bitcoin that are going to be voting on behalf of their 10 million customers. And they, you know, they're going to be influenced by regulators, and they're going to be influenced by 
you know, the traditional types of, um, of issues that financial companies are worried about. The example that Andreas gave is confidential transactions. Um, that will probably violate know your customer and anti-money laundering rules. So it's very possible that, it, you know, if that uh, proposal is adopted as a soft fork, that Wall Street can't adopt it. And then effectively, you've created two Bitcoin ecosystems. He called the the Wall Street one corpo coin. Um, and then you'll have the, the, the traditional Bitcoin that just adopts the new um, confidential transactions method and goes on its merry way. But, but effectively, you've now created two different ecosystems. And, and he views that as, as inevitable. Um, what Trace and I were talking about is actually an even bigger downside, though, which is that, that the community, if it senses that all these um, fractionally reserved paper bitcoins off chain that are created that are not fully backed by by real on chain bitcoins, um, and, and the and the community decides to call that bluff. We can force a short a short squeeze that could actually bankrupt Wall Street, depending upon how short it is. And that is, um, if it, it, the analogy is is to what happened in the Ethereum Ethereum Classic split where the value ended up going to the new chain in those initial days after the new coin is after the fork happens there's no liquidity to speak of in that new coin and that is the sort of thing that could cause a run on the bank scenario at a custodian that is that has naked short exposures through fractionally reserving promised bitcoin out to their customers if all their customers say, hey, we want the real coins, give us the real coins, and there's no liquidity because the exchanges haven't picked up the new coins yet, and some folks haven't gone through the process to you know, use their private keys to reveal them because so many people have their private keys in storage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's, just, there's not going to be any liquidity, and they're short those coins and on those first few trading days, they've got that big naked short position in those in the new coin with no liquidity to cover. That's the sort of scenario that is that that's that is a, a high loss severity severity scenario. And if you've got a leveraged financial institution that's in that position, boy, that could you know that could that could bankrupt them. And I was thinking about it today. What's the probability of something like that happening? It's actually pretty high. And what's the probability of a chain fork? Again, in, you know, that's actually pretty high too. And now you're talking about a surprisingly high probability scenario with high severity of losses. At the end of the day, what all this means uh, for those who may not follow all this jargon is Wall Street's never going to control Bitcoin. The, 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 the full node operators control Bitcoin and uh, Wall Street is never going to be able. It's so decentralized now. Wall Street's never going to be able to control to control it. And so, at the end of the day, Wall Street's going to be able to do some damage, but it's not going to control Bitcoin. Yeah, it's it's almost kind of the UASF issue where absolutely because Wall Street may even with their fractional reserve and their leverage trading within those custodians hold quite a bit of Bitcoin. It's not as if even if they have a hundred thousand Bitcoin, they're not having they don't have a hundred thousand nodes running, right? Right. They may have a few of their own yeah. just to, to to be using, but they're gonna have no power whatsoever on the network. And and uh I, I when I was reading that and listening to that, I was just kind of like, Man, it's like, I I is anybody on Wall Street at at a large institutional, you know, in that that kind of world considering 
this and that kind of implication? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was at first when I was looking at the ICE uh, announcement, Blockstream was congratulating them, and I was I was surprised. Um, but what I realized later is that Blockstream is the partner with the New York Stock Exchange, which is um, a, a subsidiary of ICE for the Bitcoin price feed, and uh, it does not appear that, that Blockstream is involved in backed. Um, so I don't know who they're connected with. Uh, it was interesting today in a Twitter exchange, um, one of the people from VanEck, the mutual fund, uh, uh, the ETF um, complex uh, that is applying for a Bitcoin ETF with SolidX, came forward and said uh, that they plan to start working with the core developers in Bitcoin. And, the, and, and if you read what, what the gentleman said uh, in his tweets, they've spent a lot of time working with regulators and with the financial industry, but I don't know how many people have really dug into the core Bitcoin um, uh, technologists. I haven't found anyone yet who said they're working on these projects. That, and obviously, I don't know everyone. Nobody does uh, in this in this industry. But one other interesting data point is when the um, when Hester Pierce put out a tweet seeking responses from the public on the um, crypto fund custodial issue, among others, um, she published three public comment letters, and all of them were from the traditional financial industry. So you're asking a very good question. Andreas raised it in his video this morning as well. Is there real technical Bitcoin um, uh, expertise surrounding these Wall Street projects? I don't know the answer to that, um, but it it's it, I haven't seen it yet. I, I hope that they that they do go out and get it. Um, but uh, you know, again, one of the uh, exchanges today talked about that uh, the core devs have to keep in mind government regulation when they're building Bitcoin. And I thought, wow, if that's really <laughs> what Wall Street thinks, they've got they don't understand this at all. And maybe it's funny. I was chatting with uh, one of my mentors in Austrian economics today. Uh, talking about the reaction that w one of these one of the big Wall Street investors had when he saw the ice news, Wall Street's going to start effing with Bitcoin, and he disagreed. My mentor said, "No, no, 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 this is Bitcoin attacking Wall Street." Um, uh, and well, that's I, I, I just don't see uh, I just don't see that. I, he and I just disagree on that. Um, I actually think this. We both agree in the end that Bitcoin is superior money. That the you know, dollar-based system is is inherently unstable. Uh, it's a question of, you know, is 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 this an attack on Bitcoin by Wall Street trying to play the games that suppress the price, just like uh, in the gold market and and other commodities, by creating more paper claims to them than there are real underlying, um, or is this Bitcoin's attack on Wall Street? And he believes that, and 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 uh, he's someone who taught me a lot. So I respect the debate that we're having. It is a valid view uh, that it's time for Bitcoin to take on Wall Street. I, I think that, you know, it, it's been brought up that, you know, the, the only way that Bitcoin can lose is not, I shouldn't say lose per se, because it'll always be, you know exist, is that if basically central banks disappeared and we went back, you know, to sound money policies and that would kind of destroy to a point the use case for a digital store of value. I still don't see it 
necessarily. I think it would definitely slow it down immensely. Uh, but there's always a chance, you know, like I think they just I read a story where they found this massive discovery of diamonds, you know, far below uh, the Earth's crust that would like double the, the you know, if, if we could actually get to it, would like double the uh, the the total amount of diamonds in the world or whatever. And there's always a chance you could find more gold or more silver or more whatever fill in the blank ac- you know, asset that we would use to peg, uh, you know, our, our currency to. Sure. But there's there's no way to that. And that's one of the things I've, I've really ran into when I talk to people. Uh, my, my father-in-law was a bond trader for a while and, and just talking yeah. to some of his friends that are kind of in that same world, you know, they still don't like just talking to them. Some of the questions like after like an hour, the, you know, they, they came back to, well, what if the guy who owns Bitcoin comes back and just takes them all back? Um, and <laughs> so they, you know, they, the, the really hard thing for people to really understand is they're, it's not, well, I guess I shouldn't say it's, it's not uh, you know, totally impossible, but it's as highly improbable as, uh, as a um, as an you know an asteroid hitting or whatever that you could create more Bitcoin right the, to be able to gain control of the network or to force um, to force a change in the network to create more is just astronomically improbable and yes. that is not true of of gold that that that's right the one thing that Wall Street can do though is get around those pay, the, those real world limitations by creating yeah. paper claims and causing folks to think of them as substitutes and they have succeeded. A lot of people think they own gold in their 401k when they own a gold ETF, but it's not redeemable for the underlying gold. And, and, you know, even if it's allocated and they have an accounting statement to say that there's actual gold in the vault, a, it's not redeemable for the underlying, you can't exchange your ETF share for the underlying and, and B, the problem is that what's in that vault is probably being rehypothecated. And so you don't know definitively that they're promising that gold to you at the same time as they're promising that gold to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. There's nobody keeping track of the rehypothecation. And this is why the dull food situation was not discoverable on people's brokerage statements. You can't trust your brokerage statement. I don't trust my brokerage statement. Because yeah. I, I, tr- I trust that it's accurate, but I don't know that they're not promising all the uh, all those securities out to multiple people. And that's what you just don't know. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, to talk actually about the dual foods case. If you could actually kind of give like an overview of what went on there and kind of as a, a kind of a good overall case of, of just how, you know, uh, uh, assets on, on Wall Street can kind of get totally, uh, totally out of whack. Sure. Um, it's it's just an egregious example of something that happens every day. I've experienced it personally, and that is that Wall Street's accounting ledgers are just not honest. Um, and they're arbable by bad actors who figure out how to steal value from mom and pop um, by getting in between and um, capturing arbitrage that otherwise would be accruing to those shareholders. In the Dole situation, there were there was a class action lawsuit. The details of that are not important, but there were 49.2 million claims, all of which were backed up by valid brokerage statements. The problem is there were only 36.7 million shares outstanding. And so there were valid brokerage statements. Again, you wouldn't have known that there was a problem by looking at your brokerage statement. 49.2 million people thought they owned, or you know, 49.2 million shares were were validly owned in brokerage statements. By, by Dole Food shareholders, but there were actually only 36.7 million. So that kind of gives you 
a, a, a sense for what Patrick Byrne calls the bezel, um, the cruft in the system, right? There was one third more um, promised than actually existed. And if you didn't own the physical certificate, what you what you owned was actually something that was diluted by one third just through the way the accounting system worked. There are lots of other examples of that. That one's just an easy and obvious one. Another one I like to point to is the Procter & Gamble proxy vote, um, which was hilariously inaccurate in the vote counts. It swung from, it was a proxy contest that happened late last year. And by the way, the Dole case was a 2017 case too. These are, re- these are recent situations, but in the, in the Procter & Gamble proxy contest, there, there was a contested board vote over a board seat. Um, and in the first vote, uh, the, the vote count came um, for the Procter & Gamble candidate plus 6.2 million votes. And then the second count, the first recount, it swung to the challenger, Nelson Peltz, winning by 40 some thousand votes. And then they recounted again and it swung back to Procter and Gamble winning by 498,000 votes. But imagine if our, if our elector election system had that level of inaccuracy in the vote tallies, it's, it's laughable that the, that the vote tallies were this inaccurate. And there's a, a, um, it's, it's well known in the Delaware bar that if you have anything that's closer than 55, 45 on the vote percentages, that it's a crapshoot because the, because the Wall Street accounting system just doesn't keep track of who owns what. And so, and, and the SEC, by the way, has allowed the voting system not to be one, one share, one vote. They allow the brokerage firms to estimate the votes based on the shares that they have in custody for their, for their um, shareholders. Well, that's that's really interesting. Uh, the uh, so I mean, and that's that's kind of a clearinghouse issue, isn't it? It is, but it's also a brokerage firm issue. It's it's basically any of the leveraged um, firms along that chain. It, it could be you know your broker like a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch. Um, it could be their custodian like J.P. Morgan or State Street or Northern Trust or Bank of New York, or it could actually be the depository trust company, which is actually the legal owner of the shares. Um, and part of the problem is all those accounting goes through. I just walked you through three layers of how shares are owned. There's you at the very bottom and then your brokerage firm and then their custodian and then the the central securities depository, the DTC. So you're three layers removed from where the real ownership of securities is. And that's where the accounting systems can get out of whack because a lot of these are still batch processed overnight, believe it or not. These are not real time settled transactions and they're netted furthermore as well. That's why everything's commingled and held in omnibus accounts. And a big part of how Wall Street makes money is in rehypothecating these securities. And that rehypothecation is a fancy word for three-card Monty. It is, um, I actually report that I own a security and then I turn around and pledge it to somebody else who gets to report that they own it. And then they turn around and pledge it to somebody else who thinks who gets to report that they own it. So now you've got three different parties reporting on their brokerage de- statements that they own it, but there's actually only one security. And what I just described to you is how the U.S. Treasury bond market works. So if you own treasuries in your in your um, brokerage account, um, you know you're, you you may be haircut one third if there's if there's ever a, a reckoning. But if that is how the system would say work with holding crypto assets like Bitcoin, going back to the, the fork issue, 
yep. is if all three people are claiming that they own that asset at the same time, you're not going to have that underlying forked coin for all three. Is that is that kind that's of part exactly of the issue? That's, that'll just, I mean, that's yep. not even the, the the fractional side either, correct? Right. That's that's on top of if you did the fractional and started to lend it out as well. Well, that that's that is how I think about the fractional. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, so I mean, just to use an example, I was talking with a developer today. Let's say that you have a hundred bitcoins and you've promised out four hundred. The custodian promised out four hundred, so they actually have a hundred, but um, they've you know you've got four hundred coins showing up on people's brokerage statements, but there's only one hundred there. Um, so now the chain forks. So you in after the fork. You now have a short position of 400 in the new Bitcoin. You have 100 new Bitcoins. You still have your 100 old Bitcoins and you, have, you still have your short position in the 400 old Bitcoins. So at first you look at that and say, well, nothing's changed. You've, you've still got the same amount of leverage in the old coin as the new coin. But the issue is, as we talked about earlier, that new coin's not actually going to have any real liquidity in it. Um, and so if you've actually got to go cover because people actually want to, you know, you kind of have a run like Coinbase did a couple summers ago, a run on the bank, and everybody wants to withdraw because they think you may be playing three-card Monty on them and they want to force you into um, into uh, cashing you out in the real thing. Coinbase survived that. They did not actually have a problem. And actually, I think, you know, a lot of folks who were watching that probably went back to them after they did survive that run. But, um, and, and again, it was not a formal run. You, if you look it up in Twitter, you'll see that it was real, but, um, but they, but, the, but Coin, Coinbase really wasn't playing three card Monty, not to the extent that, that wall street regularly does. Otherwise they wouldn't have survived that. Um, but in wall street's case, you know, a lot of folks will start questioning, I think, do you actually have the real Bitcoins, especially if they don't give the coins right away. And that's where the technologists are worried with this developer I was talking to today. He said, that's what I would be more worried about is you got to stay up with these with these forks and they can come at you fast and furious. And you've got to have a technologist who is actually able to deliver, to claim those coins and actually then deliver it. And most likely the devil's going to be in the details in all these financialized versions of Bitcoin where they're going to have the ability not to deliver the fork to you right away. Um, and they're going to have the ability to cash you out as opposed to giving you the real thing. And again, in this uh, in this exchange I had with uh, with with one of the Bitcoin applicants today, um, I asked, "Are you going to allow the ETF uh, holders to redeem in the underlying Bitcoin? Because that would certainly make me more comfortable." And there was no response because I know <laughs> the answer is no. And and what to what extent is that you know because. Are they going to like do every single fork? You almost think it almost seems like it'd be opening themselves up to just kind of like the the master troll of Wall Street yeah. for people who just want to because anybody can fork at any time. There's, there's nothing to stop for anybody, and that's you know one of the beauties of the system. But in a non Wall Street sense, in a you know just an average user sense, you can choose to claim those coins or not. So if I don't want to claim. Bitcoin God or whatever the next fork has been, <laughs> right. I don't have to. But with Wall yeah. Street, as a, you know, as, as a fiduciary, I don't know. I mean, could they write in, into their, you know, in, in, into the uh, in the investor documents that we're only going to claim, you know, coins after a certain amount of time if they gain mark, you know, market any kind of market share, or is that something they could do? Perhaps. Well, sure or, they could. 
Sure, sure, they could. Or they could just say that we don't owe you the, the four coins, right? You know, you know, Coinbase, I think, only gave Bitcoin cash. I don't know. I may be wrong, um, and your readers may correct me, uh, but I don't know if they gave anything other than Bitcoin cash. No, I, I don't believe they've done even Bitcoin gold. I know some places like Uphold and, and others have done that, but as far but as I know- Bitcoin they, Diamond they, and, you know, all the others, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, well, you would think that would open up an opportunity for different actors in Wall Street to go like, okay, no, we are going to be the ones who actually offer you every single fork, which we're going to give you a larger quote unquote dividend, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, would not then that just kind of drag users or not users, but uh, clients over to them and forcing other, I well, guess potentially. it just kind of depends. Yeah, and a lot of folks have asked me, you know, what's 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 my angle on this? And my angle is I'm trying to educate because I come from the Wall Street background. There are a lot of crypto folks who didn't think it was possible that fractional reserve Bitcoin can exist. I think that's now, you know, a lot of folks are 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 taking the time to dig in, realize Wall Street can fractionalize anything, yes, including Bitcoin, um, off the chain, uh, and they and they can get away with it. Um, but the real reason that uh, that I'm focused on this is, is the real money investors. Who are the real money investors? That's the pension funds, the mutual funds, the endowments, the foundations, uh, the insurance companies. These are the long only traditional investors that are mom and pop's money. These are not the hedge funds that you know can, can play the games. The folks that were double dipping in the Dole Food case, I almost guarantee that that was predominantly hedge funds because the compliance departments of the mutual funds would never allow a company that had sold the shares to then turn around and claim a lawsuit settlement even though they'd sold the shares right who does that that's you know that that's unscrupulous players and and incidentally as a side note i haven't seen sec enforcement action on that that is a delaware court case that came out a year and a half ago where are the people in handcuffs over that it's pretty obvious that there was that there was fraud, and and I haven't seen any enforcement actions being taken about that, and and that's that's just you know that kind of manipulation happens in Wall Street. Why why is that not the headline? And instead, you know, going after scam artists in, in crypto and painting the crypto tape with um, scam allegations uh, is, is is the focus. I I think there's plenty of that kind of stuff happening in. Um, in Wall Street. And incidentally, as a side note to that, I'm waiting for the plaintiff's attorneys to come in. Where are the plaintiff's attorneys suing over, over rehypothecation um, and, and going after the fiduciaries for agreeing to it? Um, the fiduciaries are the ones, and, and ultimately coming back to what, what's my angle here? I want to help educate the fiduciaries. I've been a pension fiduciary uh, on and off for 20 years, give or take. Um, and, and I've personally negotiated agreements, collateral um, pledge agreements with the pension as the counterparty where ERISA fiduciaries in the United States have personal liability. Okay. So, you know, I, again, I'm waiting for the, for the plaintiff's attorneys to come in and say, we've got a lot of malfeasance happening on wall street and there's personal liability for ERISA fiduciaries and you better dot your I's and cross your T's. And this custody question is one that I know the fiduciaries have been ignoring. Part of the reason I know that is mm -hmm. because I was pushing it personally, um, and and the and the managers who were managing the pension funds' money were coming back and saying, "Why do you care about this?" And um, the funny thing is, when when derivatives were were um, novated over to central counterparties back 
four or five years ago, this was one of the Dodd-Frank centralizations of risk um, in reaction to the financial crisis. Um, what we discovered is that the collateral terms that we had negotiated on our own were better than the collateral terms that the central counterparties were offering. So that just goes to tell you that the market's not demanding this. It's the fiduciaries of these real money investors who should be demanding better terms from Wall Street. They're the ones who are having the value skimmed by these dole food type situations. They're the ones who really do own the shares of Procter & Gamble and were not given a one-for-one -one vote in, in that proxy battle. They're the ones who should be fixing this. And, and I asked um, a couple of friends over the weekend at a, at a Free State Project picnic who, were, who are still on Wall Street, and we were talking about this. And you know, why, I was asking, why is it that the fiduciaries are not sticking their head under the hood and really demanding better treatment from Wall Street? And they said um, some, a lot of it is that they don't feel like they can affect change. Well, one of the ways you can affect change is to start owning crypto assets, start owning digital bearer assets, opt yourself out of the ownership structure of Wall Street that is not friendly to you and has skimmed value off of your, of your client's assets. And you can fight back as a group. Um, so that's where that's my angle. I'm spending a lot of time talking to pension fiduciaries, insurance. I've, been, I've talked to the insurance regulators three times about how the securities industry has usurped their regulatory power. They used to be able to go into the insurance company's vaults and verify that the assets that the insurance companies reported on their financial statements were actually there back when they were in paper form. Well, now that all these assets are owned by the depository trust company, um, guess what? The insurance regulators don't have any audit rights over the depository trust company, so they have no idea whether the assets that are reported on the financial statements of the insurance companies are really there. Sure, again, they can look at the brokerage statements, but as we just talked about, the brokerage statements don't tell you the real picture, and, and these regulators don't have the audit rights. They ought to be joining together and fighting back. And it wasn't that an issue with Bernie Madoff as well, because his brokerage statements were showing everything was was a okay, and yeah. without anybody actually auditing the, well, I, I guess the the digital assets or you know the actual assets that were being held, there's no way to tell. Yeah. Um, with you, you mentioned custody, and this has been a huge issue in you know kind of the crypto Wall Street kind of pipeline, I guess, or how to get these two together, or how Wall Street can actually get uh, in, into the kind of Bitcoin business because, you know, custody is that they haven't quite figured out the solution. I know Coinbase is kind of starting to offer something, but can you explain, you know, you know, the custody problem? Like, why is this such an issue? You know, most people in crypto just goes, you, you have a wallet, you have your private right. key, you have your public key. It's, it's fine. You, you hold the asset. That's how you prove it. Yeah. Well, that's not how institutions hold their money. And a lot of it has to do with the um, with the Securities uh, Exchange Act of 1940, I believe, um, and and that dates back to shenanigans that happened during the Depression, where asset managers also custodied the assets they managed, and there was a lot of fraud. So securities laws since then have required that asset managers not actually, if they're big enough, um, and that threshold right now is 150 million dollars for a registered investment advisor. Uh, and again, there are a lot of details around this that I'm skimming over, but basically um, a third party asset manager that's, that manages $150 million has to have 
um, a, a third party custodian and um, segregate the assets from the from the management so that the manager can't uh, run off with the assets. This is so much less relevant now that um, most assets are in digital form, much less in blockchain digital bearer form, but um, but it is still the lodge. It's a vestige of history. And here's the problem. Um, when you try to enforce that law on crypto assets that were never meant to be commingled because they're in allocated form to begin with, um, and every time you actually move them, you're exposing those private keys and increasing the hacking risk, um, you've now kind of forced a round hole into a square peg. And you know, we don't really know in huge size what the implications of all of this is. Again, I think there's more risk to Wall Street than there is to Bitcoin, but I don't like the fact that there may be accidents involving Wall Street's involvement in Bitcoin that get blamed on Bitcoin. So um, that's where I'm really concerned. And um, I, I, I think what's happening is a lot of people are racing to solve this custody problem by creating a qualified custodian to be able to bring in the pension funds and the like who need to be able to have a third party custodian. Uh, but what I hope is that the industry evolves towards something like smart custody. Chris Allen is working on smart custody. He's not the only one, but um, he's the most vocal one saying we should use things like multi-sig and time locks. And that's not what Wall Street's going to offer. They're they're going to they're going to commingle and rehypothecate because that's their standard business model, and that means that uh, you know that's a giant honeypot for hackers, um, and uh, they're going to be exposing private keys more frequently than a than a crypto savvy person would probably, um, and uh, you know they've got this fork exposure that we've already talked about, and uh, there is no lender of last resort for Bitcoin, and. And that's uh, kind of the beautiful thing too, as well. Absolutely, and and but so they again these these extreme exposures are not so extreme, and the loss severity in these bad scenarios is, could be very high. So they're playing with fire if they start rehypothecating. We know they're going to commingle, but is commingling fatal if if there's one hundred percent? allocation, uh, you know, 100% backing with real Bitcoins? No, it's not fatal. Um, Coinbase proved that. Although Andreas's point is, look, the Coinbases of the world, he didn't name them, but um, they're the big biggest player in the in the crypto merchant processor and exchange space. So it's easy to, to point to them. In any event, um, Andreas said, look, those guys actually did have an influence on the fork, uh, on the scaling debate. Um, and so Wall Street's now going to have even bigger pools of influence on scaling debates. And it's just a fact. Um, so even if they are not playing rehypothecation games and they are 100% backed by real Bitcoin in those custodial accounts, um, it's, it's still going to have an impact on Bitcoin that's, that, that's not positive. Now, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, Wall Street getting Bitcoin and offering these assets. They're going to have to... They can't just create them out of thin air. They will have to have, you know, a a quote unquote physical Bitcoin, right? You know, under under management to be able to offer it, and then to if they do end up um, fractional uh, fractionizing and doing all that kind of stuff, how will they actually get actual Bitcoin in? Because it's not as just as simple. And I don't think they necessarily want. They're going to have to be doing some massive OTC buys, but the people 
that they're going to probably be have to buy from are all these kind of hardcore hodlers that are not necessarily going to be the most open to going like, let's just open the floodgates to, to Wall Street. Right. Good, good, good question. I think they're going to buy, well, you know, there's a fair amount that trade regularly every day, right? You know, a majority of coins are squirreled away in, um, in cold storage and will never be made available to them. But um, there are a fair amount of coins to trade on a daily basis just in the in the existing ecosystem. So that's where they're going to start. But they're going to collect the Bitcoins in the form of margin on the um, f- uh, physical settled Bitcoin futures contract. Uh, and the other place I suspect, just putting the reading the tea leaves, is their partnership with Starbucks. That um, it's interesting because ICE is not a retail player. So the fact that they're getting into retail payments is definitely outside of their wheelhouse. And I suspect that the reason for doing that is that they want to be in the flow of daily Bitcoin movements and that that partnership with Starbucks is intended to give them more flow. Um, Again, the uh, the devil's going to be in the details. I can't wait to see the legal agreements for all of these Wall Street players. And and I'll bet they won't make them all public because folks like me will be combing over them and looking for the holes. But the reason I raise that is I suspect that there's going to be um, a cross a cross default guarantee or some sort of a, a commingling of the credit exposures in those pools of Bitcoin, whether it's coming in from retail payments in the case of the Starbucks relationship or whether it's coming in from the institutional Bitcoin futures contract, that they're all going to be commingled somehow. So jump, uh, you know, with the Starbucks uh, and and uh, other real t- retailers that they're going to be offering in there, the way that I read it is that it's not that Starbucks is specifically taking Bitcoin, but if you want to spend Bitcoin, it would basically flow through their system. Starbucks would receive U.S. dollars, yes. and then you know the the Bitcoin would go you know through the back system and just basically kind of almost a, a, well, it's not an atomic swap, but you know it would just be instantaneously swapped basically. Uh, within their within their payment platform, and, and that's imagine- no different than. I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. That's no, no different than how Coinbase and BitPay work today. Yeah, yeah, no. It's just that um, without offering Bitcoin, you know, directly to or the retailers directly taking it right and just having it processed through back. I mean, how big of a, a kind of a flow do you think that that's going to be? That's a good question. You know, and a lot of folks are excited about that retail side. That definitely excites me more than the institutional side um, because it does potentially bring in new users to Bitcoin. But again, a lot of folks are going to be just like many people, their gateway into the system is to set up a Coinbase account because you can link that to your bank account. Um, That can be the gateway into Bitcoin. And that's positive for new users. But they may not realize, just like a lot of Coinbase customers don't realize that what they have is an IOU from an institution that might default. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's up to us in the community who understand the value of actually having the real thing to help people get beyond that gateway, which is getting their first Bitcoins into a Coinbase account and actually get those coins off the, off, you know, off the Internet into, into some sort of a key storage mechanism. Now, we've kind of been talking all about uh, kind of the implications of, you know, the ICE announcement and, and backed, which is kind of such a, a meme name for it, um, yeah. considering what we've been talking about uh, with, with it not being necessarily all complete backed. But what actually what is backed? Because I, I don't think we actually talked about what that announcement was. It was pretty big because, uh, you know, this is not, you know, some hedge fund 
saying, you know, we want to like offer this, you know, you know, this new platform that's going to offer digitized or tokenized securities. This is actually, you know, the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange saying that they're going to, you know, provide this platform. So what exactly is is backed? Backed is uh, is a, it's going to be a subsidiary of ICE. A lot of folks haven't heard of ICE, but it's actually much more systemically important than most of the big banks because ICE is one of the largest owners of exchanges and clearing houses and central counterparties in the financial system. And just to give you some background, um, after the financial crisis, basically all of the credit risk in the financial system got moved into these central authorities. And the policymakers thought that if by moving all the credit risk into these central authorities, that it could be managed and monitored more effectively by regulators. So it is sitting in companies like ICE. They are literally too big to fail. Um, and, and in fact, ICE, actually, ICE owns one of what's called a, a systemically important financial utility, uh, which is one of the big clearinghouses. So, um, and there are only a few of those systemically important financial utilities. Uh, but but th- what your reader, your, your listener should take away is ICE is one of these 10 ton gorillas most people haven't heard of, but it is um, at the core of the financial industry, which is at exactly where all of the credit risk resigns, resides. It used to be in the banks, the big bad banks. They've cracked down so much on the ability of the banks to take risk and they moved it into these central counterparties and ICE is essentially the largest or one of the largest of those. And you talked about in in your article about how BAT kind of uh, beat Delaware to the punch uh, in a way, but did they also kind of just kill a lot of these tokenized securities projects that have been kind of popping up? Um, you know, people, you know, were saying that, you know, 2018, 2019 was going to be the year of the security token and these platforms that are going to off, offer basically tokenized securities, you know, tokenized assets, tokenized real properties, right? So people, uh, institutions could come and offer their actual assets, have them, you know, audited and, and, and verified in some way, but then offer a, a digital version of those. D- is backed basically kind of killing those off in a way or at I least take, taking the steam out of them? Yeah, I don't think they're killing off the digital bearer instrument versions of those. So the ERC-20 tokens, I actually think that what BACT's announcement is very good for those types of tokens, where the underlying base layer that uh, that is that is keeping track of all of those tokens, the trades in those tokens, the underlying ledger is a public blockchain. Um, actually, I think the BACT announcement is very good for those. What the BACT announcement is not good for is... The enterprise blockchain systems, this was sort of the blockchain, not Bitcoin um, uh, system, you know, ethos. I took a a detour through that myself, thinking that um, Wall Street was going to take years before it adopted open blockchains. Well, BACT just went there. They broke the seal, so to speak. This is one of the very positive things about the BACT announcement, that they are now embracing digital bearer assets. And that is essentially, that's the first step towards absolutely clearing the decks of all of these crazy indirect ownership through three different layers of intermediaries I talked about earlier. We now actually have digital bearer assets and, and, and BACT has, has taken that first step into that market. And anyone who thought that we were going to tokenize a paper security that was already issued, that's where BACT's announcement essentially renders a lot of those projects obsolete. 
they just leapfrogged over the need for those projects because now you can actually issue in a natively digital form as opposed to taking something that was already issued in paper form in the past and tokenizing that. There's no need for that anymore. So tokenize all the things is kind of uh, uh, losing a little bit of steam on that. Well, tokenize using private blockchains is, but tokenize in a security token or utility token context is not. I actually think that's going to be turbocharged. It just, your base layer has to be an open blockchain. That's the key. It's not where the application is. It's the base layer. Is the base ledger an open blockchain that is... Um, that has some sort of a decentralized consensus mechanism to it. If the answer is yes, then that's the future. If the answer is no, it's still sitting in some centralized database and you're still trusting some counterparty along the way who's leveraged and their systems are not in sync with everybody else. That's that. Then you're just back to the old problems. Jimmy Song gave a great explanation of this from a developer's perspective about why he left Paxos um, on Laura Shin's podcast in about six weeks ago. And it was just fantastic to hear him because it was a developer's take on something that I had concluded independently, which is that those, those projects to try to take existing securities industry practices and shove them into a, pr- a private blockchain are just not going to succeed for a lot of reasons. And that's why he left Paxos. And, um, and, and, and my, I've come to the same conclusion that we're not likely to see those tokenized existing securities projects work. We're much more likely to see tokenized new securities in natively digital form and issue them on a blockchain. Um, and that is securities tokens and utility tokens. I hope that your listeners understand the clear distinction um, because it is important. I do think that uh, the ICE announcement is going to lead to issuance of natively digital securities in the future. And and also just to, to go back just a little bit, you were talking about they were going to be with their issuing of digital bear assets on this platform and how it'll eliminate a lot of the issues. Because you were talking about with the Dole Foods and all these three layers of like, I you know click, I buy Facebook stock on my... Um, Charles Schwab account, like I don't actually own that. It, it goes through all these different layers, right? And it takes a while to actually figure out who actually owns all these. And it's usually okay, like you said. But with digital bear assets, doesn't that, if I'm understanding correctly, basically almost offer like real time um, um, settlement of 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 these of these trades? Well, it's essentially real time settlement, right? I mean, we all know that blockchains are not real time; they're actually deliberately slow. Um, And, you know, the block propagation time is still on average 10 minutes in Bitcoin. And, you know, it's a question as to how how fast the um, the uh, Wall Street is is going to claim something is settled. Are they going to wait for six confirmations or what is more likely to happen is the second layer solutions are going to be deployed like Lightning Network, not a centralized second layer like BACT is building. They're building essentially a Web 2.0 type of, of architecture, a, a centralized database on top of Bitcoin. And, you know, once a day, they'll probably um, settle up against the Bitcoin blockchain on a net basis. Very different than Lightning, which is essentially escrowing the coins and preventing them from being double spent while they're in the payment channels. Um, and, and basically, you know, the existing custodial exchanges uh, like GDAX and Gemini and Kraken and Bitmex and many others 
don't look that different from what ICE is building as its second layer solution. They commingle, and um, you know we have to trust that they're actually uh, that they actually say they that they actually have all the bitcoins they say they have. Because the reason why it appears that you can trade and settle instantly on those exchanges is because they're not actually settling those coins to the underlying chain. Now we uh, not instantly we, we, anyway. We talked about a little bit with uh, you talking about with you know token offerings and, and ICOs, and from your writing, I, I gather that your thesis is that the ICO as a say a security offering is going to supplant the IPO uh, as a preferred method for raising capital, mainly just due to its 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 much less friction. Um, you know, covenant pre- uh, preferences from investors are pretty much non-existent, but there's a lot of critics of the current ICO model. I mean, I know uh, uh, Joe Carlson is one, and I think that there's some merit in her argument that these projects who choose to go ICO and not necessarily even IPO, but, you know, ICO before they even do any kind of VC funding, you know, then the Series A, Series B and all that kind of cut themselves off uh, from like them or not the mentorship that VCs can offer, at least a good VC can offer, but also kind of the ability to raise future capital because once you ICO, you can't really offer more coins or you're just going to dilute the shares you've already issued in the form of those tokens. And, it, you know, who's going to really want to invest in you if you're already willing to do that once? So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that problem? Uh, is, is there merit in that or, or did I just uh, uh, completely misread what your, what your uh, thesis was on that? Yeah, I'm much more positive, I think, than, than Jill is um, because I, this is a new form of corporate finance. It's non-dilutive financing. It's securitization in but it's what the it's what the Wall Streeters would call securitization or secured financing. That's the real form of it. We're essentially promising a future revenue stream tied to whatever the token is redeemable for, whether it's a cup of coffee at Starbucks or um, you know your your a, a, a new car or what you know whatever the token is redeemable for. Um, so it's you're, you're securing the the token um, by the the, the product that's to be produced or the revenues that will be produced therefrom, that's that's secured financing. We, we know that very well on Wall Street. We do it every day on Wall Street um, in different, uh, different forms. And so um, I don't see that as being problematic at all. In fact, actually, I see it in many ways more attractive to the issuers. And, and um, she's right about um, losing some of the mentorship from the VCs. Um, but you know, the, look, the VCs are, have demanded an awful lot from startups in terms of preferences and in terms of control, uh, and they're fiduciaries. So there's always the dance between, um, you know, in control and governance, especially in startups between the, uh, the founders, uh, and the, the board who represents the other shareholders. Uh, there's always tension. Um, and it's just turned a little bit on its head in the, securities token and utility token markets. But I'm much more positive on on the concept as a corporate finance tool. I think a lot of folks have been um, um, turned off by the scams. And there are scams, but actually there have been some real diamonds in the rough too. And we've proven as an industry, as a crypto industry, that there are institutional sized pools of money that can be man that can be raised in the form of of these utility or securities tokens that are retail investable um, and that don't require the company to sell their soul in the sense of giving up preferences 
or, or in, the, in the case of a secured financing, giving up covenants. A good example of that is Kodak Coin. A lot of folks in the crypto industry laugh at Kodak Coin. They think <laughs> yeah. it's so funny, right? I actually don't. I think it's brilliant. Kodak was on the verge of bankruptcy. The reason I say that is the stock was trading at $3. Anytime a stock trades that low, it, that's the market saying that they've lost access to traditional forms of financing. They went out and did this licensing deal and are raising money, last I knew, with Wen Digital. And they, that has no covenants attached. From a corporate finance perspective, there's no way Kodak could have gotten a deal like that out of the financial industry. That was brilliant. And you can laugh at the technology and laugh at the at the fact that, you know, when digital rebranded itself, but from Kodak's perspective as a corporate finance strategy, brilliant. And there are going to be many others like that. The stock went from $3 to $11 and it's, I don't know where it is now. Last I looked, it was, it was still about 20% higher than when they announced it. And of course, the token offering has been delayed several times. Um, due to regulatory issues because they are an SEC filer. So they have to make sure that they dot every I and cross every T and do the usual level of securities disclosure. But um, I've defended the Kodak coin uh, offering as a corporate finance tool. And trust me, there are other companies looking at doing the same thing for the same reasons. And 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 I'm not as critical of the ICO model, especially for for raising capital. And I personally really kind of like at least the idea of not necessarily how it's been practiced by some uh, so far of of the average person being able to throw 50 bucks mm-hmm. into you know the, a new startup and and I realize why uh, it's kind of with VCS or with you know um, uh, what's the term it's escaping me now uh, credit investors being you know they, they want people with money already because if they lose money, you know, then, then they've, you know, they've already, they, they've got enough money themselves where it's not as big of a hit versus somebody investing 10,000 and they make 30,000 a year. Right. But, um, I, I think that, that, uh, the ability for people to kind of do what a lot of, you know, wealthy VCs and people on wall street have been able to do, which is get in early. I, I kind of like in a way, the democratization of, of the IPO into the ICO, uh, but what, what are your feelings on that? Do, do you think that there should be some sort of uh, at least regulatory uh, requirements uh, or, or, you know, that not that, in, you know, not in the way that it's done now where anybody that sends Ethereum to this address as an investor now, should there be some, you know, better way of doing it? Well, sure. Um, um, and yeah, and I, I've talked about this um, recently. I, I actually think that this, the utility token and securities token markets prove that the Jobs Act and and crowdfunding rules are still way too bureaucratic. That we've still made it way too difficult in the United States to start a new business by selling securities, and and the the um, the, the disclosure requirements are just still too high. And this ICO market, a lot of folks, you know, will take shots at it that it's it's nuts that investors are willing to step up and purchase these things without the traditional disclosure and the traditional covenant protections and and, um, preference protections that VCs get. But I think that that's a fair trade. Investors are are making a fair trade. Let's, you know, let's let's face reality that um, there's 
a caveat emptor here and people should be allowed to make stupid decisions without having the government um, try to save themselves from themselves sometimes. And keep in mind also, there's a very global market. The U.S. does not have control over how these transactions happen because this is a very global market. Um, but I think what this shows is that the U.S. Uh, f- crowdfunding requirements are just still way too high and that these token markets are not irrational. I think the fact investors keep showing up for them, um, this is not irrational. and. I don't fall into the category that every one of these is, by definition, a scam. Yeah, I I think also that it's an issue of kind of taking 2017 as kind of you know it's a very narrow narrow picture of the ICO. Uh, it hasn't been around that long, and we're kind of looking at just kind of the ICO from you know from everybody. It's, it seemed like in 2017. As kind of being, you know, what an ICO is and what the ICO will be over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and yeah. and also the this massive run up in prices where, you know, someone was ICOing at, you know, 10 cents a coin and then it was going up to $2, you know, within three months. And this kind of these wild swings as kind of being, this is what the ICO is. And I, I think really when we look back in a 20, 30 year kind of longer view, that'll kind of just be seen as well that was you know an, an obvious kind of blip it was brand new nobody knew what this sure. was how to how to value a lot of these projects i mean it was you know a lot of people you know there, there was a lot of advice out there make sure that you know they have a good team make sure that they don't have stock photos for the team photos right um yeah you know it, advisors are really important you know if someone from the crypto space you know like say like eric Voorhees or others were were kind of you know on the advisor board of something it would kind of lend it more credibility that it was something that was decent sure. but uh, I, I think that a lot of that's going to be fleshed out uh, over the next few years and and things will kind of settle down as far as for you know how these things are offered and and where in, investors i think will get a lot more picky on on what they invest in well you've really you've already seen that um unfortunately a lot of of the issuers have pulled away from the united states um, but those that are staying in the United States are, are essentially trying to mirror the, the disclosure requirements of securities offerings. And many, many of them are actually doing Form D securities offerings, um, and they'll eventually do a public offering you know, when the tech is built and, and it's ready to go. Um, but you're already seeing a lot of, of voluntary um, improvement in standards, and I think there will be... Some some new standards that come out. The Digital Chamber of Commerce released a paper. I didn't agree with the standards, but it was a very helpful improvement. Um, and the reason I didn't agree with the standards, it didn't even mention Wyoming. By the way, Wyoming, you know, create defined utility tokens as something exempt from securities law in Wyoming, and it was designed to fit not perfectly, but pretty closely into the securities laws, federal securities laws. Um, and, you know, those standards were very federally focused and not at all designed to take on the federally focused. It was all, how do you comply with federal standards? I don't think that's where the goalpost is. I think the goalpost is, how do we compete globally in this market when you've got, you know, meaningful competitors like Switzerland and Singapore going after these startups, willing to allow them to do crowdfunding under less stringent rules than the U.S.? That's the that's the market, and the U.S. just hasn't figured that out yet. 
the policymakers need to wake up and realize that because we are losing so many companies that are trying to stay onshore yeah. in the U.S. offshore to to it, it's not even the secondary jurisdictions. It's it's primary jurisdictions like Switzerland. I've said before I worked in Switzerland for a year. I the, the Swiss shot themselves in the foot by by uh, giving in after 9-11 to the U.S. demands to do away with banking secrecy. That was what made the Swiss banks so special. And were there a lot of problems with terrorism financing and um, you know dictators stashing assets in Swiss banks, stealing from their people and so, you know, Nazi assets stashed in the Swiss banks. Yes, all of those things were drawbacks of bank secrecy. But the entire banking industry in Switzerland was built on that premise. And then the Swiss w- um, walked away from it. And it really did hurt the, tr- the domestic Swiss banking industry. And it, it really hurt the Swiss franc as well. Um, and I, candidly, I think Swiss, Switzerland is brilliant in taking a leadership role in this blockchain space and welcoming these startups to Switzerland because this is how they're going to regain their advantage that they gave up to the U.S. after 9-11 in bank secrecy. They're going to gain that competitive advantage back by being the hub of blockchain. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, at least recently, you know, the CFTC and SEC have seemed to be very uh, positive, I guess you'd say, Uh, a lot more positive than I thought. And I kind of have a feeling that they're realizing that they are going to lose the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley 2.0. Yes. if, If we don't kind of take the same stance that we did with the internet and kind of the early internet companies, which was kind of really just like hands off, let's just let this thing develop. And then we'll just kind of figure this out, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. And, and, and as much as I've been outspoken because of the Wyoming work on the token issue, I actually think there's an even bigger priority from a policy perspective at the federal level with the SEC. And that is don't apply the, custody rule to crypto assets because you are trying to force a round hole into a square peg and introducing risk that is not otherwise there. Crypto assets are digital bearer assets, natively digital from their inception, allocated to their individual owners, not commingled by nature. And every time you move those private keys, you're exposing to the you know, exposing them to theft and loss. And it is just you know the the way the U.S. could dominate the the blockchain blockchain industry even more than fixing the crowdfunding and securities rules is actually allowing a blockchain itself to be a custodian of assets. the 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 reasoning behind that qualified custodian rule again is that you know you didn't want the managers to be able to steal the assets. You needed you know the the custodian to watch the managers, so to speak, by keeping control of the assets. Well, that just seems, must sound strange to a lot of your listeners who are not familiar with Wall Street history because a blockchain is a custodian. The assets never actually leave the blockchain. So what are you talking about? Well, you know, back when they were in in bearer in paper bearer form, the assets could disappear. Now they're in digital bearer form and they never actually leave the blockchain. Their ownership just changes hands. Uh, so the, you you really don't need a third party custodian anymore, and I very much hope that policymakers 
and the SEC to the extent they're able can uh, prevent the crypto industry from having to fit itself into that very outdated regulation. Well, I, I think that's a, a great, great point to end on. I'd, I'd really like to, to thank you for your time. Uh, I know it was, a, it was kind of a, a late recording. Uh, where, you know, what, what are you up to? Where can you be found? Where can uh, people contact you? Uh, Caitlin-Long.com. That's the easiest place. Um, all of my Forbes articles I repost there as well. And then Forbes.com contributor. And I'll be working, I'm working on a book. It's a slow process, so I don't have an estimated date for release. But it's it's on the topic of the interaction of Wall Street and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And I'll be talking a lot about, you know, what goes on behind the scenes in Wall Street that makes the financial system inherently unstable and unfair and why Bitcoin is the solution to that. I, I very much want a stable and fair financial system and these real money institutional investors, the pension funds, the endowments, the foundations, the mutual funds, the insurance companies, they're our friends. But the, um, these infrastructure players and the broker dealers and the custodians, they're going to commingle and reapothecate. They're not our friends. And uh, let's, let's get our friends in in a, in a safe and um, crypto-friendly way. And I'll link to all those, uh, your articles, your Forbes, your Twitter, and all that uh, in the show notes. And, and once again, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, this has been fun. You asked very good questions. And we'll stay in touch. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Did You Know Crypto podcast. If you'd like to help out, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, as well as go to didyouknowcrypto.com and shop through our Amazon link. Please like us on Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere else. Thanks. Hope to see you again.